Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews, like the one you hear in a few minutes. I'm Chen. I'm Red. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. This week, Alex catches up with Jeff Green, another veteran of the games journalism industry, to talk about his history in the magazine industry, his introduction to computer gaming world, his column Greenspeak, and much more. But first, let's get on with some news. A little bit of news to get into. Nothing crazy coming on, uh, but a cool little new trick discovered over the weekend by Twitch streamer Boba is uh, Metal Gear Solid has a new speedrun trick. Uh, when you're going up uh, the spooky staircase, you eventually can get clipped through the door without unlocking it and thus skipping cutscenes and other enemies. Uh, shaving about two minutes off the time, so be on the lookout for more faster speedruns. That's huge. More faster. More faster. Yeah. That is that is a huge time save. <laughs> In terms, uh, the, of, in terms of speedrunning. Two minutes is yeah. colossal. Yeah. Uh, people I, get stoked when you shave two seconds off of something, and if you can <laughs> shave yeah. two whole minutes, it's like, oh, cool. Uh, my life's work is now over. <laughs> the speedrunning scene for the game has opened back up. Um, yes. They've, they've checked the glitch, and it is replicatable. I think now the test is whether it can be used in other areas, or if it's just that one door. Yeah, that would be... I mean, if you're able to just cut through more doors, you'll be able to save many mm-hmm. more minutes off. It'll That's an interesting way to do it, too, because it looked like it was... If you watch the video of it, it's a very interesting thing. You just back up against the wall fighting your way, and then you just clip through. And, like, the enemies just shove you in. And I was like, oh, that's useful. Mm-hmm. It's a good game save. Um, it's fun that how people can always find a new glitch in old games. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it really is remarkable. I think that and it's almost exclusively kind of because in the speedrunning community, so many people are just playing one game over and over and over, trying to get the best time, and they're going through all, coming through every little bit of the game. And if you can find really minuscule glitches that haven't been seen, it's it's really crazy. I mean, it was it reminds me of that. Uh, I think it was the Arkham uh, Batman Arkham City thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there is like 10 years after release or whatever, it actually found one of the secrets where you had to change like calendar man who is in the basement. You had to change your internal PS4 clock to a specific date. And then he would unlock and then he would give you, it's like, Oh, so you showed up on this day of all days and have a really specific line that he would say in regards to that date and its relation to the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was, I, I love secrets like that. Uh, little bitty hidden gems are make, make games just that much better. Um, in other streaming news, uh, an apex legend streamer just did a 54 hour stream to climb to the top of the charts in apex legends so that's all you need to know if you want to be at the top spot in apex legends you just got to spend 55 hours to beat this guy um (laughs) so or do it faster 
and yeah, uh, we're doing get a faster. better record. I think I can do 48 hours. hours, but 54 is a little bit too much for me, even. I can't do 16 hours a week. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. I get I get burnt out after a couple hours. I'm just like, I mean, it's fun, but I'm just like, ugh. I, I need a, a break. I need a minute or like an hour to do something. <laughs> yeah, or an hour to do something less. I'm but. just that kind of person who rushed the game to be f- finished when whenever a new games come into my collection just mm-hmm. can't help mm-hmm. well Alrighty, but we're kind of sounding so, like, like old people now yeah it's fine but so the, let's uh, uh, hand it over to some actual old people oh, uh, yeah. and let them talk about how it was back in 1900 <laughs> or you know was a thing 2000 at least pre-ipod <laughs> pre-ipod apple era it's uh-huh. not that I mean which is still mind blowing but no yeah it was it was the 90s yeah some well, of us were alive barely uh, <laughs> but this week let's throw it over to Alex and Jeff Green to hear them reminisce and talk about some game journalism in life and we're back and we're here with my former boss Jeff Green Jeff how are you doing I am well. How are you, Alex? I am great, and I'm excited to talk about uh, the early magazine history that we share. But before even we shared a magazine, you were at Mac Week. Yes, that was my first magazine gig. It was a uh, now-defunct weekly Macintosh business magazine. Um, and it was about as exciting as that sounds. Well, it's um, amazing that the market could support a weekly published piece of paper about Macintosh news. And that was like pre, pre-iPod even, yes. let alone iPhone. I mean, th- that was actually kind of the dark days of, of Apple. Um, it was just post-Next, I think, post the, you know, Jobs' Next box. And I don't think anybody knew what was really going to happen with, with Apple's future at that point. In fact, that, I should have bought stock back then. <laughs> right. How'd you get the job? <laughs> I got the job because I was at a, a book publishing place run by Ziff Davis, our former boss. So mm. so in the late 80s, early 90s, they computer books were like a thing back then. Mm. You know, uh, people would buy books on DBase and Lotus 1, 2, 3. I don't know if your listeners even know that might not sound like English to them. But yeah, these were just old software programs. And there used to be like paper books, like 600 page books on how to run these things. That was my first gig out of college was um, at Cybex Computer Books. And um, then Ziff Davis came into town. Ziff Davis is the, you know, the big corporation that owned all the gaming magazines that everybody knows, but also PC Magazine. PC computing, all sorts of computer magazines, and they decided to start up a book division in the in the Bay Area, and they poached a bunch of us from Cybex Computer Books. So that was my intro to Ziff Davis was the book division, but I couldn't stand it. I hated working on those books, and I was really excited about getting into the magazine biz. And a listing went up for an internal listing for Mac Week, so I went there thinking that being on a Macintosh weekly would be more exciting than working on books. And comparatively, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Reporting on SCSI drives and scanners? Yeah, my my beat was the uh, modem and routers beat. Whoa! Yeah. Occasionally, it would, I would get into exciting things like uh, laser printer reviews, uh, <laughs> things like that. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty soul deadening, and it, and it, it wasn't, 
it wasn't for me, but it was, you know, I learned a hell of a lot. I learned a lot about the magazine business. I learned about how to make a weekly deadline. That was a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, as soon as you turned in your weekly stories, you really had to get to work on the next week. Um, how did you get over to CGW? That was actually the exact same process. That was the internal job listings. And, you know, I, I wasn't at Mac Week for that long before I realized it was just really not for me. I mean, to be on a weekly magazine about that kind of stuff, you, you had to be passionate about it. And like my coworkers on that magazine, like that's what they were into. They were into talking about like Mac routers, you know, <laughs> and I, I totally was not. And after hours at work there, we would we would be playing things like Marathon, yeah. which was, you know, Bungie's early land game. Um, and, you know, and I was playing games on my own, you know, and had been before I was ever at Mac Week. And but I never thought I could have a career in gaming. That just seemed like something else that like the, the cooler people got to do or the luckier people. I never even imagined it was possible that I could do that. And, and but I used to read all the magazines. I read Next Generation back then mm -hmm. uh, when Neil West ran it and uh, and Computer Gaming World and um, EGM. And uh, I used to be so mad when I would read it thinking like, how did, did these, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on your podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> people have. The how how, how did these, these bastards get to work on such a cool magazine? And then a listing went up for Computer Gaming World. And it was a, it was a pay cut and it was a lower position than where I was at at the time at Mac Week. And I totally didn't even hesitate. I like jumped on it. <laughs> and, uh, and my boss at Mac Week was like, pissed that I did that and he because he thought I was like throwing my career away and in fact basically said as much to me when I was in his office quitting he was like do you have any idea what you're giving up here like you know and I was like yeah I totally do dude like like maybe this is your whole world but it but it ain't mine you know um and I never looked back I mean and I didn't regret it for a day yeah eventually you became the editor-in-chief yeah, that was just mostly a process of attrition. You know, I just I stayed longer than everybody else. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, along the way, like Ziff Davis launched Ziff Davis TV and things. I remember yeah. they sent you over for an audition over there, didn't they? They did. They God, your memory is really good, Alex. Um, <laughs> that's frightening. Yeah, they sent me over there uh, at the time they were launching like Tech TV. Um, I think. I think uh, Adam Sessler, you know, was was working there at the time, or he got the gig, and Kate Patello and some other cool people, and they brought me over to to uh, to audition. And I remember them just like being aghast at how old I was. And somebody even made like they made me read this copy, and it was like really like, "Hey, kids," you know. And I I tried my best to do it, but I remember hearing. I, I either heard it directly in my ears or I heard it secondhand that they were like, this is so pathetic that this that this old guy is here. So I didn't get the gig. But, you you know, you and I were talking about this before we before we hit record that what seemed like old at the time, like now I can't believe it, you know, because I did really feel old back then. I think it's sort of a career hazard of, of being in gaming is that um, it's a young person's industry, right, by by definition, or it's a young person's pursuit for the most part. I think it's changing. I think as gamers are aging now, as the gaming generation is, is getting older, maybe that perception is changing. But certainly back in the 90s and early 2000s, 
like you know responsible adults were not in the in the gaming industry. <laughs> we're certainly not responsible. No. <laughs> and no, we were not. Uh, Even that's what boss, I, was not. One of the things I said to Crispin was that uh, actually they had gotten in trouble in Illinois for running over somebody in the office on a scooter. Right. Didn't we do that too? We we ran around in scooters. We did. I mean. It was really like a, yeah, it was like paid kindergarten to some extent. <laughs> I mean, there was no adult supervision. There were no adults in the biz- in the building. I was not. I mean, maybe the publishers, maybe like Dale and some of those guys, um, of the people on the other side were a little more responsible, but we certainly weren't. I mean, it was kind of looking back, it was like a, it was pretty great, right? I mean, it was, it was pretty fun to go to work and just be playing games. And I mean... To be clear, we didn't just play games all day. That's a, like a, a, a huge misconception about anybody who works in the gaming industry, right? I mean, of course we play games. That is part of our job. But everybody also has a job they actually really have to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And ours was to write a magazine. Absolutely. And that's a publishing thing. It's a lot of work. But like the death matches after 5 p.m. Oh, my God. And, you know, to be honest, sometimes it was like after 3 p.m. or, <laughs> or after 2 p.m. It would depend where we were on the on the deadline schedule. Yeah, but um, not, honestly, I think one of the greatest things about the, the later CGW issues and about and after the Jimmy Wilson or the Johnny Wilson eras, I'm sorry, uh, is, is your column Greenspeak. And people oh, would be upset you. if I didn't mention it. Can you tell me any some of your favorite memories of Greenspeak? Well, certainly um, getting to write it was a is it was a huge, um, you know, amazing memory for me and and it was a it was really a career milestone i still consider a career milestone to have been able to get that you know ever since i was a kid i wanted to be a writer i wanted to have a column and then to actually have a you know the back page column in a in a big magazine like that i mean obviously this was not the new yorker or esquire or whatever but you know in our world cgw was was pretty big and um you know i sort of had to earn my my way into that column like, I don't know if you remember this, but the first few columns I wrote were not in the magazine itself. They were on the CD that came with the magazine <laughs> because they didn't yet like fully believe I could do it or I hadn't let, you know, I hadn't earned the right yet. I hadn't been there long enough. But um, the CD column was popular enough, ridiculously, that they eventually gave me the the back page. And um yeah, I think just the freedom to be able to write about whatever I wanted to write about and have sort of no filter was like such a such an amazing. Um, it just felt really good creatively, you know, that I every month I could write whatever I wanted to, and and they basically would publish it. Um, just felt great. And what I really liked about the column mostly was I, I sort of had a mission, and the mission was. It was a self-imposed mission, which was basically, and it does, it's not genius, but I just wanted to be entertaining. I wanted it to be funny and I wanted it, I wanted to end the issue off in, in a, um, in a fun way. Uh, the, the guy who had the column before me, Martin Cerulis, who was a very brilliant guy and a smart writer and, and no offense to him or whatever, but like his column was called What's the Deal? And I had, I have fond memories of that column too, so by no means do I mean to insult him in any way, but it, but the nature of his column, what's the deal meant that he was complaining every month. It was like, what's the deal with online gamers, you know, and it would be like a 900 page rant on what idiots people were online or whatever. And it wasn't devoid of humor, but it was always a rant. That's what it was. He ended the issue with a rant. And I felt like, you know, 
I actually want it to be like a little more fun than that. And and my biggest goal and the thing that made me the happiest is if people who were not gamers liked the column, then I felt like I really succeeded. If I could just write something that would make anybody laugh or whatever, I felt like I did my job. I think you definitely did your job there. I think the other thing to sort of point out is, you know, like Jack Benny, you know, the old old timey radio, well, it's old guys <laughs> talk here. Old timey radio doesn't necessarily hold up, but Jack Benny holds up because Jack Benny made fun of himself. Right. Right. And, yeah. I did that a lot. And, <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, now that you say that, that was really my other goal with the <laughs> column was to be to show that gamers and gaming didn't have to just all be like, you know, toxic, like male one upmanship. And and just like there was just a whole lot of like, I'm the greatest gamer kind of stuff at all time. And I felt like I felt like I couldn't relate to that attitude at all. Like I'm a gamer, but like I've never been like that great at a lot of games that I love, you know, but I, I play them anyway. But like, I will readily admit that I suck at certain things. And like, that was an attitude I felt like never got expressed in the magazines. It was always just like how awesome we were. So I wanted to get that feeling across too. And so I, yeah, I wrote a lot of columns about what it was like to be like the worst gamer in, in the, in the building. And I think that resonated with other people who, who, you know, don't like to admit it out loud, but who know that they're not the greatest. I think that was also indicative of the transition of the period, right? It was going from people who had grown up, uh, you know, being the fastest, twitchiest in town, transitioning to the next generation of fastest, twitchiest to the first person yeah. shooters. Actually, that's a great point um, because those of us who were on the magazine in those, at that transition point, um, that's right. When Doom and Quake and all those games started coming up, like CGW had been around for so long that and was really kind of more, especially in the early days, more centric around strategy games and war games and RPGs, all of which were turn-based in those days, that the rise of the shooters kind of took CGW back. Like, they didn't know how to handle it at first, you know, the old guard. And that's directly contributed to the rise and eventual domination of PC Gamer, you know, our, our competition. They basically won that war because they were just, frankly, more with it. You know, um, we were turning down covers from id that they were taking. Um, you know, there's a few notorious examples. Like we put Wing Commander 4 on the cover uh, because we passed up um, Quake 2. You know, it's it's yeah. so th- it's that kind of thing. We don't have to go into how, how much we all hate PC Gamer, like we hate the Yankees or we hate the, you know. <laughs> we the don't Seahawks hate PC Gamer. No, we don't. You know, we, they're wonderful people. But competitively, I mean. Competitively, yeah, they were the enemy. They were the enemy. Uh, I wanted to transition here, though, because you made the transition to the other side of the industry for a while. I'm wondering I did. what that experience was like for you making that jump after covering it for so long. Yeah, it kind of sucked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we always say about the developing. Developing sucks. It's hard. Right. It was hard. It was hard to work on the same thing day after day after day after day after day, especially if it wasn't like a game that you were like really that into. You know, like I, I, I didn't really understand that until I was in the middle of doing it. Um, I went to EA is where I went and I went to the Sims team. And the first thing I learned joining the Sims team is that there was a hierarchy in in the sims team like you don't immediately go to that team and get to work on the sims or sim city you have to start on things like sim animals 
which is what was the first game I worked on. Um, you know, you have to start at the lower tier. So I was working on like Sims games for the Wii at the time is, is what I got mm. stuck with. And um, yeah, but that and, you know, Sim Animals, no offense to anyone who might be listening, whoever worked on Sim Animals, you know, it wasn't the greatest game. And we all knew that. And even the management knew it. They knew it wasn't going to be great, and and they weren't going to budget any more than they had already budgeted. And they were like, we're going to be fine if it comes out with a 70. You guys just finish the game. And so you would go in day after day after day, knowing you were working on a mediocre game, knowing no one was going to buy it. And you had to do that because that was your job. And it didn't change after a few weeks, like working on a magazine. It wasn't like like we got to start over every four weeks, right? If we put out an issue that was not our best issue, well, we started fresh the next month. When you're working on a video game, you're working on it every day for years. Yeah. And if you're lucky and you're working on something awesome, um, you know, then maybe going to work is super fun every day. Um, but if you're working on something that nobody gives a shit about, that's sort of a different story. But that's that's sort of one of the things we try to communicate at the museum is, you know, even the game that you didn't like, somebody worked very hard on that. And it that's wasn't right. necessarily a fun process for them. That's right. It wasn't necessarily a fun process. And the other thing that I learned, I have to say, is that, you know, working on games that weren't like that great is uh, what I learned having come from the critical, the you know, the, the criticism side is that everybody on the team basically knows it and they're trying their hardest to make it as good as they can. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of the things that that would get complained about in reviews like, well, why didn't they do this? The team totally thought about that. Like you mm-hmm. didn't think of something that they didn't. They're not any dumber than you are. Like they all knew that like maybe the UI wasn't as good as it should be and they would like to do this, that, or the other thing, but they didn't have the time or they didn't have the budget. Or in order to do that, they were going to have to rip out some other part of the game that they didn't have time for. So everybody's effort is always super sincere, even on the games that end up not getting good Metacritic scores. At least what I've seen throughout my career is that what you said is exactly right. Everybody is trying their hardest to make the best game they possibly can. Nobody sets out to make a shitty video game, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, I think we should we should frame what you just said and put it on the wall when people come into the museum. That is like the most important thing I think a lot of fans need to hear. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I'm at, just put yourself in the in the in that exact place. That's all anybody really has to do. You're going to do the best job you can. Uh, but you now, what are you up to now? Well, now I'm I'm still not, you know, I'm still away from the the press, but this is the closest job I've had to being in the magazines. Now I'm a full-time consultant. I have a, my, uh, my own business with two former CGW guys who you know, Robert Coffey and Ryan Scott. Uh, the three of us formed a company called MinMax. We are at uh, min-max.net. And we uh, hire ourselves out to game companies to look at the games that are in development um, and advise them before they come out. Sometimes that involves doing mock reviews. In other words, we're going to review it as if we were still critics and tell you what you're going to get. And, and this is probably what you can expect from the real critics. But what we really prefer to do is is come in before that, before it gets to that stage, like while the games are still in alpha or even pre-alpha, and sort of help them 
help guide some of their decision making as they're developing the game. Like get early, give them early feedback on UI, on combat systems, on dialogue systems, on plot, on whatever, on graphics, and sort of help them see what they often can't see because they're so close to the project. Mm. Um, or often what we're doing is we're mediating um, between, you know, there might be a dispute between the developers and the publishers oh. or just sort of some conflict over like they think it's awesome, but the but the publishers think it sucks. So they get a third party to kind of come in and weigh in on it. Um, we won't really know that when we come in, like we're not told that there's an issue, but we'll come in and they'll say, OK, play the game all day and then give us your feedback. And then inevitably we'll say something like. This was great, but you know the the UI was just was just really awful. And then somebody will go, "See, we told you." <laughs> that's a, like, that's exactly like the business consulting in the real world. It's just you know a lot more fun. Yes, it's it. That is what consultants do in any business, and yeah, that's what we are. And it's it's a good gig. And I think the most fun for us is that when we were in the in the journalism side, and we would go to a company, and they would be showing us a game. Then it was all like, not all, but a lot of times there was a lot of smoke and mirrors. It was like, let's show them the best possible version of whatever it is, Tomb Raider. You know, so they, they prepare everything for the press ahead of time. Now in our current job, we go in there and they're like, okay, here's everything. Here's everything that's broken. Help. You know, so we get, we're getting like an honest look and a, and a real look at the games in this raw state that they're in. And it's really fascinating. Like, it's fascinating to see games from the very beginning when they're like not looking that promising. And in many cases, some of the games we've looked at are games that everyone listening here has played and they turn out awesome. And we're so excited. And like, we're not taking any necessarily taking any credit for it. It's just fun to watch the process. Mm. No, it's you've become part of the team, basically. In a way, you know, we we definitely humble ourselves and say, like, all we're really doing is helping them think. You know, like, mm-hmm. like we don't ever suggest any act. Like, what I would never do is say, your combat isn't working. I think you should do this. It's more like we'll say, I we think you should do something like this. It's it's a subtle difference. It's basically sort of saying like, why don't you th- why don't you guys think about these five things, as opposed to I'm going to tell you five things you should put in your game because we're not making the game, they are. Certainly, certainly. that's it's like an absurd amount of experience between the three of you guys. It's like sixty years of experience and over that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's a lot, and I'm you know, sorry. and also we hire a lot of people. By the way. Um, to as freelancers and as um, uh, contractors, because we're tr- all because we are also aware that we are three older white guys, and especially these days, we want to make sure that we're able to provide a diverse point of view for sure. anybody making games. In some cases, that's a huge part of the deal, right? Mm-hmm. Is somebody is some group of people is some character being portrayed in a good way? So we mm-hmm. try to offer whatever we can demographically that makes sense. Excellent. Well, Jeff Green, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast and uh, good luck going forward. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to talk to you and see you after all these many, many years. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Take care. And we're back. All right. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Okay, everybody, we're back now. Welcome back to the Medcast. We got a great show. We like we just had a great show, a great interview for you. Um, 
I apologize uh, for that outburst. I will try and make sure that he never comes out again. Uh, but we we will like to extend a thank you for Jeff Green and Alex uh, for that great interview. Uh, so now that we were talking about kind of like the older era of like Apple and iPad or iPod rather, uh, what have y'all been playing? <laughs> Has great anything... segue. Good job. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have been playing, uh, speaking about sort of slightly older games and older formats, they talked about uh, Doom and Quake and stuff for a minute. Yeah. Um, I have been playing the beta for Splitgate, uh, which is uh, a, a upcoming first-person shooter, arena shooter, um, that is essentially Halo meets Portal. And I have got to say, it is really fun. Um, it is it is exactly how you remember uh, Halo deathmatches going. Uh, it is extremely hectic, fast paced. It feels like a Quake or a Doom. Uh, lots what's of the, lots what's of the title of this again? Splitgate. Splitgate. Okay, that, I like. That's a cool name. I like no, I like the name, but I also like the just the portal Halo combo. I mm-hmm. like being able to jump through portals and sneak behind somebody. Or is it for PvP it's like, only? It's PvP only, yeah. Mm. But it's 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 extremely quick. You can get into and out of a lobby in like seconds. Um, I've never really been disappointed in a round. Like you win and you lose, but it's always entertaining to play. It's not like, a, oh, I feel really bad because I'm not doing anything. It's like, no, that's just the game. You're running around, you're getting shot, you're shooting. Awesome. Uh, t- the time to kill is pretty slow. Uh, it's it's Halo-y. Um, it's, not, it's not like a Rainbow Six where you just get shot once and you're dead. Um, okay. And it is just, it's, it's, it's good fun. It's not groundbreaking, but it's, it's very entertaining. That I mean, that's very important for like. I think that's where a lot of games that try and take themselves too seriously they forget the fun aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Like where you just want to enjoy playing the game. You don't necessarily need to. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to just make it specifically mechanic based and like super serious. There needs to be an element of fun because video games are supposed to be fun, right? Um, no. Right? No. I don't, I don't know what games you're playing, man. <laughs> I think it's more difficult to make games that are fun for all people instead of just fun for you, but not the people you're beating out of. That's that's a very that's a very fair point. Yeah, that kind of remind me. I mean, it's a while ago when Stasis coming to. Destiny 2, people all are yelling mm. in the Crucible that they think frozen your enemy is so much fun. But being frozen, it's not fun at all. Yes, very true. It's like, being frozen is not fun, but freezing other people is fun. I mean, it's a it's a give and take of the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's back it's to... It's very difficult know, to take a balance of it, like... Yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, going back to the old game, it's very fun to noob tube people in the in, in Modern Warfare, but then when you get blasted with the noob tube, then you're just pissed off. It's like, it's, it's a give and take. There's, as long as you're using the item that gives you an edge, then it's good. But as soon as somebody else uses it, they're the worst player and a cheater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
only I get to use it. Just me. You, it's illegal for you. I need the help. <laughs> I need it to win. <laughs> I'm but, bad at the game. Yeah. Um, in a little other news, I do want to mention that I've been playing Pokemon Unite a little bit. It, I, As a person who is not very deep into MOBAs, uh, this one is very fun. And I think they do a pretty good job of having it be fair base of entry for everybody and like their ranking system with as you level up you play with people that are of similar of similar strength or uh gee yeah so a similar experience of the game so it makes it kind of about ba- makes it pretty balanced it's also very short matches so it's not like you're going to be locked in a match for 30 minutes 40 minutes uh it's a strict 10 minute limit uh mm-hmm. and they also have shorter five minute matches i think it's uh, the flow is really well, and the use of the Pokemon as as your character and like playing ability, I really really like it. And getting getting to see them evolve as the match goes on is really fun too. Um, I recommend it if you're in there for like a a base level ease of entry MOBA, mm-hmm. and you like Pokemon. I recommend it. Um, but I think it's about time that we wrap this puppy up for today but we will see you next week we want to thank you for listening to the museum of art and digital entertainment's official podcast if you have any thoughts questions corrections or general museum ideas please shoot us an email at info at the we would like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patron supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to the podcast one week before its release on major streaming services and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chun. I'm Miles. I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. Thanks, we'll see you next time. Later, gamers! <laughs>